2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. And may God speak to us from his living word. Father, in the stillness of these next few moments that we have together with your word open before us, we come to pray for your help and your blessing. Holy Spirit is really the only infallible interpreter of Scripture, and we pray for his help tonight. And we pray that all of us will leave with a sense that you are in this building and that you are ministering to us from your word. So we ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you think the qualities of a good leader are. What makes a good leader? What makes a good Christian leader? I wonder if the addition of the word Christian makes any difference to your perception of what might be required. Do we look for the same things in our church minister as we do in our prime minister. I think for the most part, when we think about leadership, we think about strength. A leader must be strong and forceful. They must be robust and tough. There can be no chinks in their armor. They must be invincible. A good leader isn't allowed really to be tired or to be nervous. There's no room for leaders to be overwhelmed by the many challenges that they face. 
A leader isn't allowed to show any signs of weakness. That was certainly the view that was being propagated in the church in Corinth by a group of self-appointed teachers that had invaded the church. But this kind of view, I think, is mythical because the best of men are only men at best, and the best of women are only women at best. However, this was the view that was being promoted, and Paul's weaknesses were being listed as evidence of his inferiority. So, in this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, which is actually his fourth letter, which is a little bit confusing, he wants to show his readers how off-beam they are in regards to this bogus view of leadership. In 2 Corinthians, Paul will lay bare his own sense of weakness and vulnerability without any apology or without any embarrassment whatsoever. But he wants the Corinthians to know that it's when he feels weakest that he believes he is the strongest, because it's when he is at an end of his own resources that he is then depending on God's resources. So when it's when he feels weakest, it is then that he feels strongest. Let me tell you a little bit about the church at Corinth. I think that will help to make sense not only of tonight, maybe not so much tonight, but of coming nights, and it might be useful. Paul founded the church in Corinth, obviously on his second missionary journey, somewhere AD 50. Um, he spent 18 months in the city, uh, down there on the little isthmus connecting the two parts of Greece. And um, 18 months he spent there. When he arrived, he bumped into a couple called Aquila and Priscilla. Difficult to know if they were Christians prior to Paul meeting them. Uh, they may have become Christians when they had been expelled from Rome in AD 49 by the emperor Claudius, who kicked them all out of all the Jews out of Rome. And they had arrived in Corinth, and somehow Paul had bumped into them and had joined them in their business of tent-making. Difficult to know if they were Christians beforehand or not. Most seem to think that they were. I have a little sort of romantic dream now and again that Paul met them and started making tents with them and day by day shared the gospel with them and then had the joy of pointing them to the Savior and they became the first members of the church at Corinth. It's just a dream of mine and we'll discover when we get to heaven if there's any truth in it. Um, at the end of 18 months, Paul left Corinth and headed back to Asia where eventually he settled in Ephesus and spent somewhere in the region of three years. And uh, before he got to Ephesus, finally there was a trip to Antioch and Jerusalem and so on. But there were difficulties in the church at Corinth that simply were not abating. A notable lady called Chloe and another gentleman, gentleman called Stephanus had been keeping uh, the Apostle Paul in touch with what was happening in the church at Corinth. There was one particular issue that related to sexual immorality. That was a bit of an issue in Corinth. Uh, there was a temple built on the top of the Acro-Corinth, and in its heyday, a thousand sacred priestesses served in that temple during the day and then descended on the city to ply their trade at night. So it's not difficult to see why immorality was such a huge problem in this city of Corinth. It stood at the crossroads of the ancient world, 
and uh, all kinds of people showed up in, in Corinth. And there was a huge problem, sexual immorality in the church. And Paul had written an earlier letter to them from Ephesus. We, we assume, we presume from Ephesus, he had written a letter to them and asking them to deal with this particular issue. That had not really um, res- ended up in the, with the kind of results that he wanted or expected. So he wrote another letter called 1 Corinthians. And uh, that didn't kind of generate the kind of results and response that he wanted either. So he jumped on a ship and he made a quick tour across the Aegean Sea and he went and visited there. It's sometimes referred to as the painful visit. And it didn't go so well. He came back to Ephesus. There were people that picked on him, people that seemed to gang up against him when he was there for a very short time. And he came back to Ephesus and... uh, he then followed up his, his uh, painful visit with a severe letter, a sharp cutting letter that we don't have. And uh, he sent Titus with it, and uh, he then waited for Titus to come back to find out how they had responded to this letter. He eventually hooked up with uh, Titus in Philippi, having left Ephesus and made his way up around the Aegean Sea. He, he met Titus in Philippi. It would appear in Macedonia, probably Philippi. And uh, Titus brought great news about how they had responded to this letter, and they had done all of the things, it would appear, that Paul had asked them to do in that um, severe letter. And so Second Corinthians is really his fourth letter. It's a kind of a follow-up letter that he wrote and sent to them from Macedonia somewhere as he was passing through that region. And eventually, he would make his way down to Corinth, and he would spend some time in it before he went off to Jerusalem, where he would be arrested and shipped off to Rome. I hope that that doesn't bore you to tears and gives you a little bit of an insight as to the background of this letter. All kinds of issues were going on in the church at Corinth. divided into factions. There were different groups, and these groups were rallying against each other, and all kinds of things were taking place. Rich Christians uh, were just kind of isolating and disregarding poor Christians, particularly at the love feasts. Um, They would start before the poor got out of the fields and free from their slavery. It was, in many senses, it was just chaos in the church at Corinth. And And Paul's letters and visits are his attempt to deal with some of these issues and to interact with them and ask them to do something about it. Now, if that teaches you anything, it teaches you this, that church is church. The church is church the world over. And church is church no matter what century you step into. The problem with church is that there are lots of people in church. And because of people, all kinds of problems um, uh, erupt and, and, and uh, show up. I, I heard a story about um, one young man. His mum walked in. It was 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, and she walked in and said, it's time to get up and go to church. And he pulls the pillow over his head, and he says, give me one good reason why I should go to church. And his mum said to him, well, you're the pastor. And there are 300 people waiting for you to preach to them. That's why you should go to church. The truth is, church is church. We sometimes have this 
idealistic picture of what it must have been like, and it was, it was difficult then, and there were all kinds of issues then, uh, just as there are today. The introductory verses, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, are fairly straightforward. I'm not going to say a lot about them. Uh, in those introductory verses, I think that Paul does three things. He reaffirms his own position as an apostle, and that's significant because he himself is under fire in 2 Corinthians. He needs to defend his own position as an apostle. Secondly, he just highlights the fact that God owns the church. Uh, Leaders don't own the church. Self-appointed critics of Paul don't own the church. Paul himself doesn't own the church. The church is God's. Uh, Thirdly, uh, the church, uh, he emphasizes the fact that the, the church is a family and that that family is the family of God. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God in Timothy, our our brother. Paul is an apostle. That term can be used in in a broad way and in a narrow way, the word apostle. Barnabas, for instance, is described as an apostle of the church at Antioch. But, but there is a narrower sense in which apostles were thought of as that group of twelve that Jesus set aside and delegated his authority to, commissioned them, and sent them out as his representatives. And Paul was added to that number uh, as a result of his own encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus road. He tells us here that he is an apostle by the will of God. He's not self-appointed like his critics, He didn't get up one day and say, I am going to become an apostle. Uh, He was was transformed by the grace of God, and he was commissioned by Jesus to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, and and it was God that had given him this ministry that he has. He mentions Timothy. Uh, Timothy is with him. Timothy has been involved in the ministry uh, of the church at Corinth. He had been sent with 1 Corinthians, and he's interacted with the church at Corinth, and it's absolutely appropriate that he should be mentioned here. Uh, He's not so much of a co-author as just someone involved and deeply interested in what's happening in, in the church at Corinth. Timothy, what could we say about him? Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 20, I have no one else like him. Uh, Paul had picked him up in Lystra and asked him to join his missionary team, and Paul had sent him on some incredibly sensitive missions. He was just a he was just a reliable, faithful, refreshing kind of person, Timothy. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have a Timothy in your life, somebody that you could lean on, someone that you can trust, someone that you could entrust your life to. And over the years that I've spent in all kinds of work, I've bumped into a few Timothys, and they've been such a huge blessing to me. What's even more wonderful than having a Timothy is actually being a Timothy. And that's the challenge to me. Am I a Timothy in anyone else's life? Do I, am I the kind of companion that Timothy was to the great apostle Paul? In any conceivable way, am I a blessing um, to others? The recipients, the church of God in Corinth, uh, with all of the holy people or saints throughout Achaia. So, the church of God in Corinth uh, speaks for itself. The church, Ecclesia, is not a building. It's a group of people who've been called out of the world to Christ and met together to worship and exalt His name and study His Word. And Paul is writing to this community of Christians, believers, as they met together in Corinth. 
Um, he says it's the church of God. I emphasize that later. It doesn't belong to him, the church. It belongs to God. It's God's prized possession. He bought the church with the blood of his son. And, and every time I read this statement, the church of God, I always remind myself, Robert, be careful what you say about the church. I, I, I'd rather die than wound the church. This is God's church. He loves it with a passion. He bought it at immense cost to himself. And all of us, without exception, need to be so careful what we do in regard to the church. The letter is not only to the Corinthians, but it's also to all of the saints that are scattered throughout Achaia, that whole region of Greece. And Paul wants this letter to be read in a multi of places and, and congregations and churches. The greeting, grace and peace from God our Father. Grace comes first. It has to. You can't experience God's peace, peace unless you experience God's grace. Uh, you must first experience God's grace before you can experience God's peace. And of course, his greeting is fairly typical, but I think it's interesting in the context of this letter, because I think that Paul's critics and his opponents had no concept, had no appreciation whatsoever of grace. They thought that they themselves were just marvelous, wonderful. They had it all together. They were, they were, the, they were the epitome, the examples of what true leaders were like. And Paul knew deep in his heart that he was where he was, and he was doing what he was doing because of God's amazing grace to him. It was grace that had met him on the Damascus road. It, it was grace that had kept him, his feet firmly on the Christian pathway. And it was grace that would be waiting for him at the end of the road. And it was grace from start to finish. And he knew that if these Corinthians needed anything to live for God in this pagan city, he knew that they needed God's undeserved help. And he prays that for them. He also prays that they will experience God's amazing peace in their relationship with Christ. Well, all of that by way of introduction. I'm sorry for rambling so long by way of introduction. I just want to say a few things about chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And it's really a section that, where Paul highlights um, his troubles. Trouble is a common feature in the life of both non-Christians and Christians. God did not promise us as Christians a rose garden. He didn't say that it would be all sunshine anywhere in the Bible. Does God say it will be all sunshine and there will never be any rain? Along with the sunshine, there must be rain or we will be left with nothing but barrenness. And Paul knew what it was to face trouble. And throughout these verses, he uses a variety of words to describe some of the troubles and some of the struggles that he had uh, experience troubles, verse 4, sufferings, hardships, pressure, despair, the sentence of death, and the deadly peril. Verse 8 implies that the troubles that he had in mind were troubles that he had experienced in the city of Ephesus or in Asia. And that story is told in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was, of course, home to the great temple of Artemis, or uh, the goddess Diana. And along with the cultic ritual, uh, rituals that took place in the worship of Artemis, 
there was a roaring trade in the sale of religious paraphernalia. It was a bit like going to visit the Eiffel Tower, and you've got all of those little guys jingling those little, uh, little sort of models of the Eiffel Tower that they want you to buy from them and take home and put in your, on your mantelpiece. And, and exactly the same was true in Ephesus. You go and visit this temple, and, and they would sell you a little sort of icon of the goddess Artemis. And you would take it home, and you would use it maybe in your worship, or you could set it on your mantelpiece to gather some dust. But here's the problem. The impact of the gospel was such in Ephesus that the sale of these little icons just plummeted. So much so that there was a danger that the silversmiths were going to go out of business. Amazing, isn't it? That the gospel had such an impact in, in the first century that the silversmiths making these little images were about to go out of business. And of course, there was a whole kerfuffle. A man called Demetrius had called a meeting of the silversmiths and worked them into a frenzy, and there was a whole eruption. Two of Paul's friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, had been seized and dragged into a theater, were going to be lynched. Paul wanted to go to the theater and dress the crowd, and uh, the Christians in Ephesus know it's too vulnerable, you can't go. Eventually, things settled down, and Paul eventually left Ephesus. Um, that is the trouble that he has in mind, what took place when he was in Ephesus. That trouble that was brewing around the issue of the sales of these little icons to people, silversmiths going out of business, people attacking his friends, that's the trouble that he has primarily in mind. But you get the impression as you read through Second Corinthians chapter 1, that it maybe just maybe wasn't the only trouble that he had in mind, and that there were other things that he was struggling with. Maybe it was just the constant pressure of persecution and opposition. I mean, read the book of Acts sometime, and follow the story of Paul as he's driven out of one city after another, as these Judaizers just follow him everywhere. And maybe just the, the pressure of living with that and dealing with that on a daily basis was just wearing him down. Maybe it was physical illness, whatever his thorn in the flesh was, his failing eyesight, the aftermath of being stoned in Lystra must have left him with some kind of physical ailments, don't you think? Maybe it was maybe he had some physical struggle that he was living with, and and maybe that's the difficulty that he is referring to here in 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 these verses. The truth is, we will never know, but what we do know is that Paul was under immense pressure, and he was really feeling it. He says we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. We despaired even of life. The troubles and the struggles that we were facing were overwhelming us. We felt ground down by them. Sometimes as we looked out, we couldn't see a way forward. Sometimes as we looked forward, we just had no idea how God would make a path through. But miraculously, the God who raised, raises the dead had made a way through in the most remarkable way way. Now, what is really interesting about this section is this. Why in the world does Paul launch straight into this issue of struggling and weakness and being overwhelmed 
and feeling like there was no way of escape. Right at the very beginning of his letter. This is a letter about leadership. This is a response to the good news that Titus has brought to him from the Corinthians. Why does he just launch straight into this full-blown discussion about his own struggles as an apostle? And there's a number of answers to that question. One answer is he's trying to elicit their sympathy so that they'll stop criticizing him. When you know that someone's going through a tough time, you kind of back off and give them a break, don't you? But I doubt if that was the reason in this particular incident. Incident. I think the reason in this particular case was that the Apostle Paul wanted to counteract the nonsense that a great leader is invincible. Right at the very beginning, he wants his readers to know, actually, I am an apostle called by God, and there have been times in my life where I've felt completely overwhelmed. There's been times when I've been struggling. There's been times in my life when I haven't felt as if there's a way forward. There have been times in my life when I've convinced myself, this is it. This is it. It's all over. It's finished. I think that Paul wants his readers to know that it was in those times that he learned lessons from God that he couldn't have learned anywhere else. I think he wants his readers to know that those times are not to be shunned. They are not to be embarrassed about. They are to be embraced as the place to which God has brought us to experience his grace. And that is why I think Paul just launches straight in and tells them about his own weaknesses. I think about my own life. I have to say to you, as I think about my own life, that I have learned more in times of sadness and in times of hardship than I ever did in times of great joy and happiness. It's been when I have been brought to an end of myself that I've experienced God in ways that I never thought possible. Poet put it so well, I walked a while with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but she left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Just four things, and then we'll be finished Four things that that Paul tells his readers that he learned from his own times of being weak and overwhelmed. First of all, God comforts us so that we can comfort others. That's what he discovered as he went through his difficulties. What he discovered was that God is the Father of all comfort. He is the Father of compassion. And he kind of uses terminology that you would expect to find in the liturgy of a synagogue service, and he kind of adapts it a little bit. And he uses language here which is, is full of Old Testament overtones. I mean, you would expect to hear this kind of, uh, the, the kind of words that Paul uses, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Doesn't that remind you of Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort ye, comfort ye my people? And, and then he talks in, uh, about uh, praise be to God. 
Um, doesn't that remind you of Psalm 66, verse 20? Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Or Psalm 34, this poor man cried and the Lord delivered him from all of his troubles. The point is, he uses, uh, he begins to talk about God as, as his comforter. And as he made his way through his difficulties, he, he experienced God's comfort. God strengthened him. God gave him help to face what he was facing. And what he discovered was, when he met other people who were going through the same stuff that he had been going through, he was better placed to minister to them. He discovered that he could draw on the comfort that he had received when he was going through his difficulties to then be a blessing to the other folks that he met when they were going through their struggles and, and their difficulties. I'll never forget talking one morning in the church that I was the minister of to a lady who just wept, just wept, about her teenage son who was taking some wrong turns in life and going up some cul-de-sacs. And I thought, well, what can I ever say to this lady? My children are all under 10 years of age. I know where they are all of the time. I'm involved in most of the decisions that they make and the directions that they take. But I knew another couple in the church, a little bit older, whose son had also made some terrible choices and gone up some real dead-end streets. And I arranged for them to meet and to talk to each other. And from that point onwards, now and again, I would see them in church, in the common areas of the church, just talking together. And I'd never, ever dare to interrupt them because I knew that real-life ministry was taking place as this older couple drew on the comfort that they had received from God and tried to be a blessing to this other couple. Like, who, who best to talk to someone who has just lost their partner in life? I've never lost my partner in life. And I was the minister of the church, but I knew lots of people in the church who had lost their partners. And I could ask them to meet up with these people and bring to them the comfort that they had received. You know, there were days I wondered if I would get through, but I did get through by the grace of God and with the help of God. So as we think about a theology of suffering, here's at least one point we need to think about. God brings us the way He brings us so that when the moment comes, we will be in a position to be a blessing to others, so that we'll be able to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. Here's the second thing. God allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Now, we cannot share in the redemptive sufferings of Jesus. Jesus alone suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, as Carson's hymn has just reminded us. However, It is possible to share in the sufferings of Christ. In this sense, our work is an extension of His work. Our life is an extension of His life. The way people treat us is the way way that they treat Jesus. This is borne out so wonderfully in Acts chapter 9. Remember, God stops this, this, this persecutor of the church on his tracks, on the road to Damascus as he's pursuing Christians. Remember what what the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what the voice said. The voice said, why are you persecuting me? Because what you do to the church, you do to Jesus. 
Jesus is inextricably linked with every member of the church. He lives within them. And the way you treat them and the way that they suffer is the way that Jesus suffers and the way that Jesus is treated. So you feel a little bit ostracized because you're a Christian at uni? At work, the butt of people's jokes? That's what it is to share in the sufferings of Christ, the one who was despised and rejected. You feel a little bit of a target just because you believe in biblical principles. That's what it is to share in Jesus who was relentlessly pursued to his death. Your life is an extension of his life. What a privilege it is for us as Christians, don't you think, to suffer for Jesus? So that's the second thing on, in our theology of suffering. First thing is that we are brought the way we are brought so that we can be in a position to minister to others. Secondly, we are brought the way that we are brought so that we can somehow share in and fill up the sufferings of Christ. That is a huge privilege for us as Christians, to share in the sufferings of Jesus. The third thing is this, suffering teaches us to rely on God. Verse 9, after telling us in verse 8 about his struggles in Asia and being overwhelmed to a point where he felt there's no way forward, he says, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In verse 8, Paul felt the sentence of death hanging over him. He had come to an end of himself. It was checkmate. He didn't have any other moves to make. The only way out was divine intervention. And, and in all of this, he had learned to rely on God. It taught him to rely less on himself. Suffering and trouble, where there is no escape route, teaches us to look to the Lord in a way that nothing else can. Ever been at the end of the road? Ever felt like you have nothing left to give? Ever watched God step in and do the impossible? That's where Paul has been, and he is more convinced now than ever that he needs the power of God and the help of God, and he needs to rely more on that and less on himself. I can still remember a few years ago, I walked into the royal having broken, broken two bones in my, a bone in my neck in two places. I can still remember them coming to me lying on a corridor, in a corridor, on a trolley in a corridor, and they came and told me that I'd broken my neck. And I had so many questions, and what will the long-term effects of this be? And will I be paralyzed from the neck down? And, and, and the doctors basically said to me, we can't give you the answers to those questions. And it's a frightening place to be where you don't have the answers. And you don't have any other moves to make, and you just have to wait on God. I remember a couple of years ago, we were skiing in the Alps, and our son went missing about three o'clock in the afternoon just as the sun was fading. And he didn't show up for tea, and he still hadn't shown up about 10 o'clock at night, and it's a frightening place to be. Your son is lost on a mountain in the Alps, and there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do but just cry out to the, to the Lord. 
And what Paul says to us is, here's the third thing that I've learned in suffering. I've learned to rely on God. I've learned on occasions when I don't have the next move in my back pocket, that I have to just throw myself on the Lord and wait for Him to open up the way ahead. And it's a great, great place to be, to be waiting and resting in God and not in myself. Lastly, and with this we are through, um, suffering results in praise. That's the fourth thing. Verse 11, many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And, and that's true, isn't it? Suffering results in prayer and praise. I remember a gentleman in our church had a horrific motorcycle accident. And I can still remember some of, his, some of the prayer meetings that we had for him as he lay in a mangled mess in hospital. And his wife asked if we could have some special times of prayer that God would miraculously intervene and touch him. And I can still remember those times of prayer even tonight. Some of the most special times of prayer in my entire life. And that is the fourth thing that Paul says. Suffering results in prayerfulness and praise as we see God intervene and as we see God answer prayer. Not always in the way that we expect Him to but always answers prayer in some shape or fashion. And that's what the apostle wants us to learn from his journey of suffering. I recently was speaking at an event uh, in the south of Ireland, and I met a young family who had traveled there from a group of islands that were formerly known as the New Hebrides. And it reminded me of John G. Patton or Peyton, Here's what happened to Peyton. He arrived on the New Hebrides on the 5th of November, 1858. Three months later, his wife gave birth to a son, February the 12th, 1859. Three months later. On the 3rd of March, his wife died. Seventeen days later, the baby followed his mother into the grave. He buried them with his own hands. And he wrote in his journal, I would have gone insane had it not been for the sweet fellowship of Christ. Paul is not embarrassed about his sufferings. He doesn't want to cover up his weaknesses and his vulnerabilities. He wants to be real. And he wants his readers to know that he experienced things and learned things from God on his journey of suffering and weakness that he couldn't have learned and wouldn't have learned anywhere else. And what is true for Paul is also true for us. Thank you for your kind attention.